Hello, everybody. Andrew Bray here, sound designer and also the son of your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. And we have this little preamble here because we're both really excited about my mom's new book, Define Your Why. So hi, mom. How you doing? <laughs> hi, Andrew. I'm really enjoying these conversations. Oh, gosh, me too. I like, <laughs> I like the chance to have you on the other end so that you get interviewed. Speaking of which, I know that in your book you have a lot of uh, stories from some inspirational people. And uh, I know that they have a little bit to do with uh, the passion you have behind these conversations in the podcast. And I wanted to hear a little bit about that. Well, what was really interesting is, you know, the podcast got so much deeper than when I had just met them. Mm -hmm. They started telling me stories. And some of the stories were, um, touched my heart. Mm. So I, I reached out to a lot of my friends and just asked them if they'd want to share just a a short part of those stories that were so moving. And almost everyone I asked said yes. I love it. In fact, I know that uh, our podcast interviewee for this episode, Lois Letchford, is even featured in your book at the end of chapter four. So, Mom, how will folks find the book? Well, the probably the easiest way is just to go to my website, and that's barbarabray.net. When you go there, at the top, I made a tab for Define Your Why. And they just have to click it, and there's so much there. What else is there? Well, I um, created a book study questions. I put in resources. I put in, well, I just had a contest, so I had that up. So I'll put it, anytime I have a contest or anything, it's just I want to put a lot of things there for people so it really expands on what they're reading. See, that's what I love about you is when you do something, you do it all the way about 200%. (laughs) Okay, so folks, stick around so you can listen to a conversation with Barbara Bray and Lois Letchford. Well, I have someone here I'm really excited about because she actually contributed to my new book, Define Your Why. It's Lois Letchford. Lois, I'm so glad you're here. Hello, Barbara. I am delighted to be talking to you. Well, it's going to be fun because I know I know all about you know what you wrote about, and we're, in fact, let me. Just, I'm going to tell a little bit about it first, and then we're going to go into more about you. Is just a little bit. Okay, for my audience. What do you do if your child fails first grade? You know, the system can label your child, and that label then defines your child. And that's what happened to Lois Letchford's son, Nicholas. That's so sad. Even hearing you say that makes me sad. I know. Well, I love what you wrote because you decided to change this label and his mindset to overcome the odds so he believed in himself. So that's one of the reasons I wanted you to write a story in my book. But I also was so excited that you said you'd share and talk to me uh, about the story, but about what you're doing. You know, I was so moved that I had to have this conversation with you today. I, I and, and also to learn about you being a literacy speaker spokesman for struggling learners. That's so big. Thank you so much for being here with me, Lois. This is so wonderful. I just love your philosophy. 
so much and it ties with the way I teach the most vulnerable students because the literacy will tell us that vulnerable students receive the worst instruction Mm -hmm. and that's what I want to change. Well, we're going to get into a lot of that because I want to I want to know more about you and how you even got to that. Um, what I usually ask everyone on my show is, "What is your background?" I hear an accent. Where? where <laughs> tell me where where you grew up and and a little bit about you. I grew up in southeast Queensland in Australia, which is one of the subtropical, so it's hot and it's wet. We had nine months of summer and three months of winter a year. Mm. I, my parents were dairy farmers and we were in a low socioeconomic area and we were struggling to make ends meet. I first went to school in a one-teacher school. We had grades one to seven under one roof. That's how old I am. Oh, <laughs> you're not that old. I think I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> and from there I went to the local primary school, the elementary school. And that was very interesting because when I was doing my master's degree, our professor had us write about our early schooling. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And she read it and then said, Lois, you had a terrible schooling. Oh, well, maybe... You know, I wanted to find out about your family. Why don't we just jump into what the schooling, since you mentioned that, what was it like? I was one of the top students. I could read words. I could not comprehend. And no one ever said anything because, you know, that little girl is just not very smart. That's why she's not doing well. But being one of the top students, one of the top three or four in the class, shows that the work was simply filling in the blanks. I could do that. But when you came to comprehension exercises, I couldn't do it. And I noticed by the time I got to fifth and sixth grade, I was in the middle of the class. And that would be because they were asking things that I had not learned. So I could grew up reading words, but not comprehending. And that was fascinating. And I survived school because of that. And as I went to high school, high school was transformative. I changed schools and it was wonderful. And that allowed me to go to college. Wow. You know, that is interesting because I had something a little bit similar where you're la- I was labeled and couldn't comprehend, but I didn't know it. And so, so okay, so let me ask you about your family then. How, what did they, how did they handle that? Um, when, I mean, were you upset when you came home and, you know, it is tough. When our, in our family, when you're milking cows morning and night and putting food on the table, that's what my mum and dad did. Wow. Our job was to go to school. Hmm. So, it was, and I'm dealing with my son, you know, years later, and my mother was 70, watching me work with my son. And she said, Lois, I needed help like you are giving Nicholas. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. That's that's very um, insightful of her, but also a big thing to admit. She probably didn't know, and there probably wasn't any help then, right? That's exactly right. Wow. Yes. Was yeah. Queen, you know, um, I hate to ask you this, but with Queensland, you know, they have all the fires and stuff. How are they doing? 
They're doing okay where we are, but I think the smoke is going absolutely everywhere across the country. Mm. It's I worry. So devastating. Yes. Oh, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. do, do, you, do you still have family there? Or? Yes, all my family there. And my mum is 94 and my father is 96. And I'm wow. still alive. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> that is amazing. So do you have any, did you grow up with sisters and brothers? Or mm-hmm. My two sisters and my brother are still in Australia. We're spread around now, but they're still there. How are they doing with the fires? Are they okay? Yeah, they're okay. They None of them have been affected. My cousin has, but not them. Wow. Not my sisters. Mm. Wow. Is anyone else a teacher? No, no, only me. Huh. When did you decide to become a teacher? Was that, you said you went up to seventh grade. Did yeah. you go to high school there? Or? Yes. I, well, I, I changed school to go to high school. And that was the transformative time in my life because I went to the next district. I didn't stay in our town of Lowood. And the next, next district, everyone was going somewhere. Hmm. And, and one of the first things they did when I attended that school was to put on a school play. And it's amazing what these extracurricular activities do for not only the morale of the school but for you because I became part of it and it was like you're on a roll and everyone was going somewhere and you just join on that bandwagon and it was amazing how transformative it was. I went to that school because my mother had, you know, the three daughters and she said, I don't want my children growing up on a dairy farm. And what I could see was on a dairy farm and on a life of farming, you live from one day to the next and there's only just enough money to cover everything. So she was really keen for us to have an education and she pushed for us to complete grade 12. Wow. Were you in any of the plays? Oh, yes, all of them. All of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Was there one that stood out that was really pretty cool? The, fir- the first one was Jack and the Beanstalk, and it was a pantomime. Oh. And it, <laughs> it was unbelievable because I remember the audience at the end standing up and just cheering for everyone. And, oh. you know, the humour and then the, uh, the ad-libbing that happened in it was just phenomenal. Oh, wow. Even ad living. That's pretty cool. So you learned improv and all of that. That's very cool. Maybe that's how it helped you with the later, you know, when you were a teacher, right? I think it certainly helped my comprehension. Huh. Well, you had to memorize and then under, and be able, if you're playing a part, you have to be able to know when to come in and follow along with someone else and read the, you know, kind of get the cues from other people. That's yes. That's it was a very cool. important component of my learning. That mm. is wonderful. So you went to college. That would yes. be big for your family. Yes, it, it was. My mother is the youngest of nine children. And so we were the youngest of this 32 grandchildren. And many of them had been to college. And one of my cousins eventually ended up getting his PhD and her family were a role model for us. Wow. Yes. That's a big one to get, you know, to go all that way. Yes. So, so uh, where did you go to school and into college? 
in Brisbane uh, and it was a teacher's college then. So that's where I started. And it was a really good, yeah, it was very good. So, okay, so we kind of missed a step, (laughs) which was, why did you decide to become a teacher and go to teacher (laughs) college? I mean, was there a teacher there that kind of influenced you or someone or something that happened? I hate to say this, but I didn't have many options. And I was given a scholarship to the teacher's college, which paid for my way. So that was the one option that I had. So I took it. Wow. Well, it worked for you. (laughs) So, And it was physical education teaching. Oh, really? Which later on really impacted the way I was able to teach and work with my son. Interesting. Mm. So did you become a physical ed teacher? I did. I did. Tell me a little bit about that. I was teaching in southeast Queensland, not far from my home, but it was the training that was so interesting, the way you have to take a skill and break it down into its component parts. And I think when I came to reading, breaking things down wasn't as hard as what it should have been. Huh. Did you stay in Brisbane? I did for about three years and then I decided that I had been to school, I went through another school to go to college and then you go back to a school. So I actually stopped teaching and went to London for a few years and it's when I was in London that I met my husband. Ah. So he was an Australian from the same area that my parents were from but he comes from the opposite end of the learning curve to what I come from. Hmm. in that he was the top student in the university, top school in the school and top of the university, and he was on a scholarship to London. So we ended up meeting and marrying. And where did you get married? Back in Brisbane. Oh. Back in Brisbane, yes. Wow. Now, so, okay, so you got married. Yeah. Sounds lovely. Um, (laughs) Did you, so did you, you taught in Brisbane? You lived in Brisbane? I lived in Brisbane, we went to London, and then, you know, my husband, I mean, I knew he was smart. When we met, he said, I want to do a PhD at Oxford. Wow. And he did. And so you, did. wow, and you lived in London then? Lived in Oxford. In Oxford? Yeah. What a yeah. wonderful place. So did you teach there? No, no. It all became too difficult, and then I started to have children. And we moved back to Brisbane where my second and third sons were born. And that's when the world changed. Well, let's go back to Oxford for a little bit. Just just to tell me, because you that is an interesting thing to live in a whole new country mm-hmm. and have a child there. Mm-hmm. How did mm-hmm. it feel for you? To, did you know people? Did it, I mean, did you want to go back to school yourself or how no. was that? No? Well, at this time, I didn't recognise that I had a learning disability. Oh. So, you know, and it does impact your life. And so my husband went to work and did his studies and I met other people. Living in university towns is incredible mm-hmm. and particularly a place like Oxford because you have so many people in your position. You, everyone's studying. There's very little money and you've all got young children, and you have this absolutely wonderful community. So when my husband got his first job back in Brisbane in our home, I go to Brisbane and I'm lost. 
Yes, because you've lost all of your friends and everyone in Brisbane has had their own life and you've had this wild experience and no one cares. Oh, oh, that's really tough. It was hard. Yeah. And But you had young children. Did that, I mean, for me, when my children were young, I met some of my best friends through my children. Did that start bringing your life back when you had your children or? A little bit, but my eldest one was a bit wild, so that doesn't help, <laughs> you know, so that doesn't make, make from friends easy. Wow. And then... Then I had Nicholas, and Nicholas was, you know, on times quite sick. So, again, you get stuck at home and caught at home. So it was really quite a tough time in my life. Oh, wow. Mm. That's, that is tough. Mm. I mean, I, I know with my children, they had asthma and things, and mm. it was, it, that is so hard for a parent. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through all of that. So, so then... What did you move or did you stay in Brisbane? We stayed in Brisbane. Uh, you know, my son started to go to school there and it's, you know, we lived very close to the university and the school was three kilometres from the university, which becomes important as the story goes on. And that's where my eldest went to school. He did well. And then Nicholas went to school and absolutely failed. Dramatic failure. Yeah, we- Wait, before you go there, we did talk about that. You told me about it. And this is, he went, do they have kindergarten or did, was it yes. in, mm-hmm. did, he, did he do okay in kindergarten? I mean, it was a different. Yes, but it's a different setting. It's a play-based setting. He went to preschool and kindergarten. I'm not, I think it's kindergarten first in Australia, followed by preschool. And he did okay. But what was interesting is that, you know, we lived in this fairly high socioeconomic area and the university is close by and there are a lot of international people and huh. a lot of international students. And they, the school claimed it had 39 different languages being spoken. Wow, 39. Nic- <laughs> yeah. Nicholas played with all the non-English-speaking children, which is great. Yeah. He's also playing with the children who are not speaking English at all. So your communication is by everything other than language. How did he do it? If he couldn't understand, if they, you mean he he would write or he would, you know, like sign? Yeah. And you're not using, you're not using oral language. No one's using oral language because you're all speaking different languages. Oh, wow. So, yes, and he but, could get away with that. In kindergarten, but not yeah. in first grade. That's right. Yes. So tell us a story what happened in first grade because that must have been hard. I'm just thinking about him now. It was just awful. And, in fact, Nicholas can't talk about it today. The teacher screamed at him. He bit his fingernails, wet his pants, And I dressed him for school every single day. And I sent him and and what still upsets me is that no one from the school said, hey, you know, there's a serious problem going on here. We shouldn't be doing this. But they didn't. Wow. Yeah, horrendous. Was he in trouble a lot? Yes. 
He's yes. first. You know, he's a first grader. <laughs> he couldn't do the work. He couldn't understand the teacher. He appeared to have no memory for letters, for words, or for sounds. He couldn't follow the teacher's directions. Every time she'd ask him to do something, then he'd just space out. What was it like at home then, if he's like that? Did you notice that issue or? I didn't know it was that bad. Huh. I, I didn't know. I knew and I, some friends told me little things, mm-hmm. but it took until the last couple of years when I started talking to Nicholas about what happened for me to realise really how horrific it was. Oh. normally you know as a parent you can go into the grade one classrooms but in our school you couldn't go in if you had a younger child and I had a younger child so I couldn't go and watch and see what was happening but Nicholas was always very quiet he was always very compliant at home and he was just very sad the whole year and it just breaks my heart when you wrote or told me uh, about him failing first grade, it just tore, it just tore my heart. I can't even imagine what you went through mm-hmm. and what he went through. He's a failure. He's labeled a failure in first grade. Okay. That, that's like ridiculous. Yeah. So how did you handle that? I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. But at the end of that grade one year, I actually saw a post in the paper about a psychologist and I wrote to him and said, what do I do with my child? And that man wrote back and said, you have to get him assessed. Mm. It wasn't even coming from the school. Did they have special ed there? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's really sad. <laughs> it seems to me that the teacher needed to be informed and, and you know, the, do you have direct... Uh, head teachers and head director yeah. you they're not principals I don't know what yeah. they're called they're, they are the principals principals yeah. and you couldn't even work with the principal on this right well you know I you send your children to school and you think they're going to be okay you can't I can't comprehend the trauma that my son went through in that first grade mm. and no one said anything to me and in, I knew he was slow I knew he struggled, but, oh, I mean, I just find it incredibly hard to talk about. Yeah. It amazes me from yes. what you said. So yes. how did you, okay, so <laughs> I, I had to read over the story you wrote. I can't wait for people to get my book and read that part and then get your book, because we're going to talk about your book too. Tell it in a, in a short, how you did it as a, you said you're a literacy problem solver, but is that how you became one? By helping well, your son or? Yes. What happened was my husband had study leave the following year when Nicholas was in second grade. He went on to grade two and he had a fantastic teacher. So, and the second half of that year, we went back to Oxford. Oh, wow. And I thought, I'm taking Nicholas out of school. I'm not putting him to school. And that was fine. And I took this series of books with me called Success for All phonics-based decoding, single words on a page, and Nicholas failed again. He failed. And my mother-in-law was with me and I'm getting frustrated. And she said to me, Lois, put away what is not working and make learning fun. And with that, you know, I Nicholas can't do anything. What can he do? He can rhyme words and he can see patterns. 
So that's where I started. I started to write these simple little poems and there was an immediate change in the classroom because I didn't expect him to read anything. I read to him. Then we found the meaning, then we found the rhyming words and the patterns and then he illustrated them and then he started laughing. And Aww. that was the start. Yeah. Make, make learning fun. Yeah. Make learning fun. Yes. And then I had a new poem for him every day. I was writing and writing and writing. Here's me with a learning disability, writing. <laughs> <laughs> and the double O's come up in cook and look and book. And I wrote about Captain James Cook because he took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little book. And then we start looking around and we found a globe from 1550. And I said, Nicholas, look, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. And that set us on a search for who came before Cook. And Nicholas asked me who came before Captain Cook. And I said, oh, that's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And then he said, and who came before Columbus? And I was blown away because I knew that was not the question that came from a child with a low IQ. Yeah. It was critical for me to see he doesn't have a low IQ. And then, you know, it, it's, it's content that drove the learning. Hmm. And only one person, one other lady spoke to me and she gave me a series of books that helped me teach him decoding. And that was fantastic. And so it was the combination of both things, the content and the decoding, that really helped. So we finish in England and Nicholas is making these huge strides in learning, minuscule strides in decoding, but he can do it. Hmm. We can do it. We go back to school and I see the diagnostician who'd done the testing the year before. She'd tested him and said he was hopeless. And I said to him, look, you know, we've had such a wonderful time in England. Nicholas was so excited about learning. And she says, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And I said, you know, he asked to see Captain Cook's original maps. She stood there, she put her hands on her hips and she said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Oh, what a terrible thing to say to a mom. <laughs> My gosh. And you also were a teacher, right? <laughs> <laughs> What a thing to say to you. I can't even believe it. Okay, so what did you do next? I went home with my tail between my legs. And I don't think quickly. I'm not good at that. But I thought about what had happened. And I went back to her and I said, you can call him whatever you like. You can call him the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching. But then don't expect him to learn like everyone else. And that was a critical moment for me. Meeting set up for the following morning. That night, the reading teacher sends Nicholas home with 10 sight words. That's a big improvement. Last year, she was sending him home with 20 sight words. So we're down to 10. That's a big deal. So he comes home, he can read eight of the 10 words. And she's got the word saw. And the sentence is, I saw a cat climb up a tree. And the second sentence was, I saw a man rob a bank. And Nicholas is reading it and he goes, I saw a cat. Nuh-uh. I was a cat. No. I had a cat. No. And I asserted a cat. And he handed me the paper. And that's when I thought, 
ah, the teaching has failed. Mm -hmm. He's cutting the cat in half because he has never seen a cat climb up a tree. She did not personalise the sentences. If she had said to Nicholas, what did you see in England? We saw Windsor Castle. He would have known exactly what she was talking about. But because she had chosen to use a generic sentence, and I say to people in Queensland, Australia, there are birds in the trees, there are bats in the sky, there are lizards on the ground, there are possums on the roofs, there are no cats. So why are we giving a child a culturally inappropriate sentence? And it was the combination of, he's the worst child I've ever seen, and I saw a cat that really made me passionate because I saw how easily we come up with, oh, the child is not very smart and he can't learn, rather than examining the teaching. And that examination of the teaching is critical. And then I went back and did my studies to become a reading specialist. I could switch in Australia from PE to reading. And I read a paper by Professor Brian Camborn called Beyond the Deficit Theory. And he said, what we do is we look at a child and say, well, look at their IQ, look at their home background, look at this. I was living academic literature. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. It's like all, all of a sudden everything's starting to come together. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. And I did a lot of reading. I spent Saturday afternoons in the library and was just immersed myself in the literature. And it was amazing, you know, with Nicholas's, the wide background we had had made a huge difference to his learning. And it's like what you were saying, and I was reading it, it's making autonomous learners. He saw a purpose for reading and writing beyond learning about letters and sounds. And that learning set him up for life. (laughs) He still loves maps and mapping. And it was just such a different take, but we needed to be away from the classroom and from school to do something so different with a child that's so extreme. Wow. Well, I can tell you, you... You've done, that's why you came up with this reversed uh, memoir. (laughs) I love your book. It is just amazing. And just tell tell my audience where Nicholas is now and what he did. I mean, it's amazing. I just, it just blew me away. That's why I love your book. Um, Believe it or not, we made another international move, which made a huge difference. We went from Brisbane, Australia, to Lubbock, Texas in 1999. And he graduated high school there in 2007. And he graduated in the top 20% of his class. (laughs) Before he completed two undergraduate degrees. And then in 2018, he completed his PhD in applied mathematics from (laughs) Oxford University. (laughs) I wish you could go back to that first grade teacher and just. <laughs> she actually died in early 2000. Ah, well, I'm sorry, but it's just too bad that they can't. This idea of labeling kids, um, it, it's just wrong. And also, when the reading teacher said that about, he's the worst ever. <laughs> um, 
they need to know this new way of connecting content and decoding, but also to relevant context. And that's why I think people need to do this because the reading programs out there are still doing phonics. They're still doing, they're not connecting. And we still have kids in ninth grade not even knowing how to read. It's driving me crazy. I That's why I wanted to talk to you about how you did this. And it's just remarkable. It is remarkable. I, I take my hat off to my son because there were two components. The first was that I had someone had to teach him to read. And the second was in Lubbock, Texas, where you saw a disciplined child. You know, he's reading two hours a night, five and six and seven nights a week throughout elementary school, every single day, you know, which you ha- we hadn't seen in Australia. And so you put a child in the situation, they fly, they bloom. And that's critical that we provide that to show these kids are f- worth far more and they do far more than we expect. That's pretty nice that that happened in Texas. So it seems like you you found the right place and the right people who were listening. But it also, it sounds like you did something with your son by opening the door to, oh. you know, this yeah. idea of connecting. Yeah. Yes. And that idea of relevancy, when you said there are no cats in where you lived, why would they have the kids say this? <laughs> And to realise that children see the concrete. They don't see the abstract. And when I say to teachers, you know, how many meanings does the word saw have? Yeah. Teachers haven't even worked out. It's got more than one meaning. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's got four. I used to say three, but it's got four meanings. We have to teach children that. We can't just expect them to know it. And that's the gap is between the spoken word and the written word. And when we teach children effectively how the written language works, we transform their learning. And, you know, and I, I go back to the word he and it. When you read them in isolation, he is two letters, consonant long e. It is a short vowel i, consonant t. The moment you put those words in context, the meaning changes. Because every time you come to the word it, it's a dynamic word and it depends on the circumstances you're in. And I read the book, A Said Stork by Gerald Rose, and it's written for children who are one year old. And it says, Ah, said stork, I will eat this egg. He pecked at it, but it would not break. And the next page is an elephant, two-page spread, elephant stamped on it. Next page, the lion bit it. And I first did this with some third graders, and I got to the end of the book and I said to them, what's the it? And they sat there, put their arms and said, it, it is nothing. If there are three words and four words on a page and you can't tell me that it is not the egg, you will not learn to read. Huh. So we got to get the name of that book so I can put that in your, I put a post together. So we can have other people look at, I mean, even some of the other things you mentioned, beyond the deficit theory, that is a really good one to share out. I can give you that paper as well. I have it. That'd be be wonderful. Well, um, I'm going to have to bring this. Unfortunately, I only have so much time. I could talk all day with you, Lois. This is just amazing. But your book is called Reversed a Memoir. 
And it's, and we're going to make sure people have a link to that too, because I really hope people read it. It is the story of Nicholas, of his success, but also they, people can recognize other Nicholases. This has yes. happened to so many. Yes. And, you know, are you planning on another book or? I've just worked out how to do my second book. It's been bubbling for quite a while. I'm like baking a sourdough bread that you have the dough and then it's got to sit. My sitting has been for two years. <laughs> that's okay, but it's that's what it takes. Yes, and I want to write it about my student Christian who is in my book as well and he mm. takes up 15 pages. But I met him at the coming towards the end of sixth grade and what it was like for him and his mother to go through six and seven years of schooling with no progress. Mm. So and I know a lot of people would, that'd be great. Yeah, so that's just coming together now. I'm excited about it. Oh, well, it's cool. Well, I am so excited that we had this time to talk today. And like I said, uh, you're in my book, Define Your Why, too, because your why, you figured that out with Nicholas long ago. And now it's kind of pulled together just all the, uh, especially because you, you see that every child has opportunities if we open the door for them. Mm-hmm. We just have to do it. You're amazing. Oh. So are you. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad, Lois, that we had this talk. This is just wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Lois Letchford. Make sure you check out the blog post that goes with the podcast about Lois on my website, and it includes links, pictures, her book, Reversed a Memoir, and how she became a literacy problem solver. When you subscribe to my website, barbarabray.net, you receive announcements, updates, new podcasts and posts, and information about my new book, Define Your Why. It's launching February 17th. Lois even wrote a story for my book. So look for Define Your Why on Amazon and on my site for the book study, resources, and more. You see, your stories, feedback, and reviews have helped me define my why. It's all about the stories. So enjoy. And please share your story.